love hearing the piano. And uh, I'm sorry, Julia, but I wish it was my son who was sitting there playing. <laughs> but I'm glad that you're here. You're just, I, just, I just love the piano. And I'd like to welcome you to Grace Reformed Baptist Church, those of you who have braved the cold. And it's good to see my brother Michael and sister Mary back. It's good to have you here. And let me go through some announcements. Next Sunday in the adult ministry training class, also known as Sunday School, we're going to start a new series called Is Genesis History? And I sent out a video for you guys to watch as uh, pre-class work. It's, it's over an hour, and it's multiple segments, but I've watched it twice. It's a fantastic video, and it's just a little different perspective than what you would find with Ken Ham with Answers in Genesis. They complement each other. And I wasn't sure if I was going to start off with Answers in Genesis, which I was supposed to do two or three years ago, pre-COVID. But I thought, well, let's, let's do Is Genesis History? So that'll be next week in the adult, uh, in the adult fellowship hall. In the fellowship hall. I know what I'm doing. Um, I'm faking it. If you wanted to have a polished speaker giving announcements, you picked the wrong guy. Isaac, raise your hand. That's Isaac White. He's in charge of our True Life Conference, not the True Church Conference that I put in the prayer sheet last week. Well, I'm just reading the bulletin, so I messed Linda up even. We have a conference coming up that's good. See Isaac about the details. I think we're scholarshipping. What are we scholarshipping with it? I like, I like that. I forgot that last part. So we want to encourage folks to do missions trips. And there's a lot of opportunities that are available. We've, we've had this available years ago, and for whatever reasons, it, it just hasn't worked out for anybody to do short-term missions. But we want to encourage you to get out and do Matthew 28. Ladies' Bible study is starting up, and there are some books. So, ladies, grab a book. There's some on the back. Yep, they're still there. And there's some downstairs. And I'd encourage you to write a card or a letter to Caroline and send it off to the address here. And it's, it's good practice to write number one, number two, number three on the back of the envelope so she knows and I thought about writing number 47 on it, so she thought that she missed 46 letters from me. And there is no fellowship lunch in January. We're being conservative because folks have been sick, and we just don't want to get together. So fellowship by yourselves. And you can read the rest of the announcements over in the bulletin. say something uh, before Jerry comes to sing <clears throat> for us and that I think it's two 
I get excited that him, if you look at the bottom there, it says William Cooper. It looks like Cowper, but it's pronounced Cooper. If you know anything about him, he's a contemporary of John Newton who wrote Amazing Grace. And one thing amazing about the story of William Cooper is John tried to help him, to minister to him because, well, William struggled with his faith. He had a bout with great depression, and some people have a greater bout with it. And what John's instruction to him was, why don't you focus on God, and in particular, write poem about God. Well, I'm glad he did, and a number of those are in our hymn book that we're still singing today, and this is one, and one that really touches me a lot when you think of this great truth, redeemed to sin no more. What a great promise for those that might be struggling day to day is the, uh, is the redemption that is in, indeed in Christ our Lord. I'm going to give you a moment to praise Christ directly for his redeeming love for you. I want to give you a moment to pray, to prepare your heart, to hear a word of Christ indeed today. Take a moment privately right where you're at to pray and think on these things, and then I'll pray for us corporately. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we have gathered together as your church. We've gathered together to worship your holy name. We're thankful that you will hear our feeble song, our pleas, and our prayers. You will hear them as a father will hear their child in the cries at any hour. And beyond that, a perfect, loving, holy Father that has more interest in hearing us than we in speaking to him. And so I pray, Father, that indeed we would speak. Speak through our union with Christ to you, empowered by the Holy Spirit. I pray that you would work in your people today. Give great encouragement to those that might be struggling with various things in their life, duties that they might have to do and responsibilities that come upon them. I pray that you give them quiet moments in their, in their mind, in their heart. I pray that they would reflect on these words that are penned so many years ago that we're even singing as a church together to magnify your holy name. I pray that it will be meaningful to them to be reminded of these great truths of who you are. I pray we will be overshadowed by your glory to think on truths that are far greater and bigger than whatever obstacles might be in our way blocking the path of your beauteous glory. I pray it will shine through with brilliant rays even this day. I pray that you'd comfort those that need comfort, convict those that 
are wayward. I pray that you would give all of us great courage to be true sons and daughters of God. I pray for every little one and every adult and everyone in between. I pray for all of us, Father, that we would all come to truly confess Jesus Christ as Lord to your glory and for our great good. I pray for those of us who have indeed confessed Christ that that confession would be continually more meaningful as each day passes. May we experience and know the true communion with Christ and the joy, internal peace and love that abounds in our union with you through Jesus Christ our Lord. May his name be praised now and forevermore. Amen. I like to praise Jesus Christ for who he is and all that he has done. All scripture points to Christ, and we can boldly proclaim that every tongue, every tribe, every nation will indeed confess Jesus Christ as Lord. Is that your confession? Let's stand and sing praises to Christ our King, 314, all hail the power of Jesus' name. The name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. 314.
church today we will be reading from psalm chapter 90 chapter 90 from psalm and in your pew bible it'll be page 496 that's again psalm 90 on page 496 from everlasting to everlasting lord you have been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return the man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but a yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. 
Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on our servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord, our God, be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this day you've given us to freely worship, Lord. Um, we pray for our brothers in Canada as they are going through trials and afflictions and your word is being attacked. We pray and we stand with them, Lord. But we thank you for your freedom that you extend to us still, that we have the right to worship you and gather uh, and praise your holiness, Lord. We thank you for all the mercies you give to us day by day. And we pray that you, yes, indeed, would establish the work of our hands, Lord, and that you would favor us, Lord. And we pray that we would glorify you in all we do and lift you up in all we do. And we bless this offering to you, Lord, and that you would do your work. In Jesus' name, amen.
hallelujah. It means praise Yahweh or praise God. I say a welcome to those that are homebound today in our congregation and also welcome some of you who are visiting with us today. We are normally going through the Gospel of John. I'm in John chapter 20. But last week, and then I thought this week, and then, you know, you never know where I go with some of the stuff. I thought I'd continue on a little bit um, in a um, detour, if you will, that I made beginning last week. Temporary. We'll go back to John 20 soon. But we focused on contending for the faith, particularly based out of Jude chapter, or not chapters, only one, Jude 3, verse 3. Verse 3 in Jude, Jude's eager to write about this common salvation that we can revel in and take great joy in, but he finds it necessary to write appealing to the church to attend for faith, the faith that was once delivered for all the saints. Last week we did this to stand with our brothers and sisters in Canada which a law was passed by their government that essentially declared the Bible a myth and declared any preaching of the gospel that would convert a sinner into a saint to be illegal. <laughs> and if you're not sure of that, you can find our archive on it from last week unless it's been deleted by some of our media friends or foes, whatever the case might be. But I thought we'd continue on today really in the same trajectory and maybe even next week as I talk about uh, perhaps I'd like to bring up what tools that we might use, the weapons of our warfare as Paul would describe them to the church at Corinth, they're, they're not of the flesh, they're the spirit and they're better, they can accomplish much more. They have the divine power to destroy strongholds. Our problem is just not believing it. But it does have that unique divine power, just the proclamation of the truth. God will accomplish what he purposes. It may bring judgment to those that would hear and rebel. And we pray that it will bring salvation to those who hear and confess Christ indeed as Lord. Jude calls the church to engage in contending for the faith. That is both offense and defense. Defend the faith, but also go on the offense, the offense in, in our prayers and proclamation of the truth. We're to defend and contend, if you will, for the faith that, as Jude mentions, is, has been once delivered. That is, this faith doesn't change. It was, was written in Genesis, which we'll look here in just a bit, in Genesis 1. It's still relevant, doesn't need to be updated. It doesn't change. It never will. His word is settled forever in heaven. What was true a few thousand years ago in a different culture is absolutely relevant in our culture today. What changes is either our apprehension of this truth or, or our aversion to it. 
The gospel never changes. It is indeed the power of God unto salvation, and it crosses every border to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It is a divine power that, that, that accompanies this foolishness of preaching, if you will. From the very beginning, Genesis to the end in Revelation. We've, we are standing with like-minded churches. Because this word of the cross that we preach, well, to those that are perishing, it is foolishness. But to those that are being saved, it is the power of God unto salvation. Indeed, I believe it. Indeed, I will proclaim it. Indeed, I will see many sons and daughters confess Jesus Christ as Lord. Governmental entities and other institutions will attempt to put chains on the gospel. That's not a new thing. But the gospel is never chained. We are going to preach the gospel in season and out of season. When it's popular to do so and everybody pats you on the back and then when it's unpopular and everybody wants to stab you in the back. We'll preach the gospel because the scripture is an absolute source of truth. It's not a myth. It can actually, the proclamation of this very truth, those simple words, can bring about repentance and faith. It can bring about regeneration by the work of the Holy Spirit to actually change that sinner into a new creation, into a very saint of God. Anecdotally, he's changed my heart. And I pray that he's changed yours too. And so, when we look to his word, we must obey God rather than men and stand with those that will also and pray that they'd have great courage. And then in our sacrifice, Christ will be preached and many will be saved. The natural mind, the mind of the flesh, as the Scripture calls it, is essentially a moral sieve of corruption leading out defilement. Seems like, leading to it, should I say, seems like that's all it can hold on to. Winds up in the normal default into a spiritual bankruptcy. And also, as I view it, really insanity. The, the foolishness that really goes on. It doesn't even make logical sense, some of the choices that people make. You're going to need safeguards. You're going to need to have truth. And that truth will not come from within in the fallen mind of man. It will not come from other men who likewise have a corrupted mind. It comes from an incorruptible source, from God himself, the truth. He's given it to us in his word, the word of God. It stands as a standard of unchangeable truth. My wife had me get to play sand this week. 
She was going to work with the children. I don't know whether it was Sunday school or children's church. But to show them that little story in the Bible about the difference between putting your house on sand and a house on rock. Maybe we should spend more time with children and learn a thing or two. You build your ideology on any other foundation other than the solid rock of God, it will collapse. Like the fool who built his house on sinking sand. This week, many churches are, and and what I'll emphasize now, are standing in solidarity today for the sanctity of human life. An address of the wanton murder of unborn children. They've used a word euphemistically to make it sound a little bit better. They call it abortion. I'm not sure it sounds a lot better, but I guess it sounds better than murder of unborn children. A little less harsh. But ultimately, this is a gospel issue. Because of the nature of God and the nature of man and the call of the gospel to proclaim salvation to everyone. Today is is a day, I said, in which many churches, and some did last week, think about the sanctity of human life. It began really this commemoration by President Reagan in January 13 in 1984 when he designated uh, January 22nd to be the first National Sanctity of Human Life Day. It's in reaction to a 1973 decision on January the 22nd, which was the day the Supreme Court legalized abortion on demand in all 50 states. Since that fateful day, over 60 million little children have been intentionally put to death. There have been some positive reactions to this tide of, I would call it insanity in doing so, killing a little child on purpose. In the 1980s and 90s in our city, some of you weren't around then, I was, there was an abortion clinic in our city. Many people made others aware of it through marches and through um, proclamations, preaching and teaching, flyers, a lot of things went on. Eventually, the profitability of that abortion clinic, best I know, um, kind of dried up (laughs) because they're doing it for the money, you understand. The people who put this together have one objective, and that is money. You know, the root of all kinds of evil, yes. The money ran up, so they decided to shut it down, and that was a good thing. And the group that, one of the nonprofit groups that really helped to organize and orchestrate this actually bought the building they were in. It was known as AAA Women's Clinic back then. It's now called Choices and still exists. They bought that building, I think, somewhere around 1993. I went over there to to see it because they had 
placed a little memorial in the back. And um, it was a section that was called the National Memorial for the Unborn. It kind of looks like a little mausoleum, a gravesite. I've never been back. Just thinking about it now brings back the memories of all the little toys and stuffed animals and most potently the letters that were stuffed all in the arrangement there. I read some of those letters of mothers who many years later were conflicted still of decisions that they made Mothers who asked for forgiveness, who wished they could have seen what their children would have become. A lot of grief, a lot of guilt. It's a hard experience to go there. I recommend it at least once. I'm not sure I can do it again. I have a great and deep concern for the mothers and the fathers as well who bear the pain and guilt. And right now, I'd like to tell you there's no guilt in Christ. I want to reassure everyone who may have experienced this or have someone close to you that has. All is forgiven at the cross. There is therefore no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. And although that guilt and pain might be great, I want to assure you that Christ's forgiveness and atonement is greater. He died for every sin. He died for your sin. All is forgiven at the cross. There is no guilt in Christ you may have some scars that you have to bear in this life, but there is greater joy in Christ who will forgive them all. A remembrance, really, of the aftermath of this Roe v. Wade, which has happened such a long time ago, it, it's almost out of our memory and mind, and if we, if we don't think about it, and perhaps if we don't visit such painful places as those memorials, we won't even think about it. I understand. It's hard to think about it. But today as we remember this event and call the church to continue to faithfully proclaim and to, pro to proclaim the gospel and to pray, it should be a day of mourning in some respects, a day of repentance, and certainly a day in which we can pray that God would graciously heal our land. This atrocity is ultimately a judgment for our moral rebellion against the glory of God. That's really what it's about. You know, people give a nice little cute arguments. I might address a couple, but you know what it really is ultimately about? It is a moral rebellion against God, the sovereign God, creator of heaven and earth, To confess Jesus Christ as Lord is to say that he is sovereign, 
It is a recognition of that and a submission to him. And God has created all things good, as we'll read in Genesis. It is a display of his glory, and the crowning of it is humanity. It is a gospel issue. This goodness of God has been corrupted by those very stewards of his creation. Our failure to adhere to his righteous intention is only going to bring further destruction. That house built on the sand is going to ultimately collapse, fail, and fall. And so in solidarity with the promise that was made many years ago to Israel that certainly would apply to all people, whether it's wicked Nineveh or wicked United States of America. If my people who are called by, by my name, that is, those who are God's people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. That's what we're called to do. And believe that indeed he will forgive and heal. It's vital that God's people certainly know this truth and teach it to the next generations so that they can be guided by the word of God rather than the whims of men. Stand firm. Stand firm. I heard on the horizon, apparently, they're trying to reestablish another abortion clinic here in Chattanooga. We'll preach and we'll pray that God indeed would be glorified. Whatever you do and however long it takes, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. There are a lot of reasons then people might give of why they would either support or tolerate the murder of unborn children. And you've thought about it, heard the list, perhaps the objections. Well, what about rape? What about incest? Of course, that only deals with 3%. What about the life of the mother? How about my body, my choice? The quality of life of this child that would be born? What about the population explosion? This is just a cluster of cells. How about the care of children that are unwanted? Each of these concerns should and can be addressed and should be addressed with great compassion and empathy. But it needs to communicate, we need to communicate the truth. We need to speak the truth, do it in loving ways for certain. But fundamentally, I think this needs to be addressed from a foundational truth that is seldom talked about that really might provide an answer or at least a foundation for a response to some of the objections and support 
And that is the perspective of humanity in God's design for humans to image forth His glory. Human beings do not have self-worth and dignity primarily by what they do. We have a tendency to assign that, right? Look what this person can do or what that person has or what this one has accomplished. That doesn't give human beings self-worth and dignity. The value of a person is based on the fact that they're a unique creation of God. They reflect His glory even in their flawed state. And should I put this? All of us are in a flawed state. In some, it's more visible in a physical sense. You might have some sort of deformity you have to deal with. Others in a mental state may not be able to achieve the same as someone else. (laughs) But all of us are born in a flawed state. And God will be glorified in human, regardless of their state as we perceive it. In the end, when they ultimately are glorified in Christ, it will be even a greater glory on display. Let's go ahead and look at our text to get a foundation for this perspective on humanity as a creation of God. And we'll just go to Genesis, the first chapter, and we'll pick it up with the creation of mankind. Verse 26. Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with its seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. And there was an evening, and there was a morning, the sixth day. Let us pray. Father, I do pray that we would glean great truth from your word. May we be guided by your truth, submissive to it, and supported by it. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let me just say at the outset really quick, this book of Genesis, the very beginning of the Bible, sets this foundational truth, and no wonder 
at least the past couple hundred years, it has been particularly assaulted by those that call themselves critics. Self-described scholarly elite who, who are apostates at best, and more particularly mouthpieces for the devil, who at the very beginning remember his famous expression, has God said? Yeah, this is being challenged. Not because of factual information, it is because a rebellion against this very truth. Because if you have to affirm it, then God is sovereign. And you're submissive to his will. He's the creator and you are the creation. This challenge to the authority of God was there from the beginning. From the father of all lies. This opening chapter in Genesis and then followed by the uh, further explanation, recapitulation, if you will, of chapter 2. It's not a poem. It's not written in poetic form. One of the world's greatest Hebrew scholars happened to be my professor. He writes books for other people who translate Hebrew. We worked through this together, and he showed me specifically why this couldn't be poetry. But that's what people try to do. You know why? Not because it has any inkling of poetry. It's they don't want to believe what it says as straightforward prose. It starts with in the beginning. God created. God creates all that is material and all that is immaterial is all created by God. Anything you can think of or know of, see or not see, it's all of God. He's the creator. They, they wouldn't end this thing, and this is the day, morning and evening in Hebrew, if it was poetry. It's prose. So when we read this, God is sovereign and man is subservient. Man demonstrates his rebellion here at a fundamental level. In our text here, God creates all of these creatures. The last is mankind. He creates him last for a reason. Because mankind, human beings, all human beings... Whatever their condition is physically or mentally, all human beings, whether their condition is from the very beginning of conception to the very last day of their breath, they're all made in the image of God. And he creates them for a purpose. It displays his glory. Notice verse 26. This mankind, human being is God's crowning of his creation. He says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. By the way, the us, our, and our here is not the plural of majesty. If you know anything about Hebrew, these pronouns specifically 
begin to reveal a truth about God which is progressively made known and that God is triune. Three persons, one being. Here it is very at the very beginning. It sets the foundation for that in these plural pronouns used. But the focus here is what God is doing. He is creating. He's creating man in his image. What image is he talking about? What what does this mean? He's certainly not talking about the physical characteristics. After all, God is a spirit. The image that he's talking about, the image of God here, is the human spirit of mankind, which is unique. It is the immaterial aspect of man. It is unique from all other creatures. Mankind, then, is in a unique form in which he can have a unique communication with God, a unique fellowship being created in his image. If I had to further describe that to you to try to give you a a category, an understanding of what it means to be in the image of God, and you can think about this in relationship to other creatures, we have a tendency to project uh, human qualities to our pets and so forth, and that's fine. And God did create them, and I love my pets. I have them. We've always had them. And I'm very sad when, they're die, when they die. It's hard because we love them. But always understand they don't have these qualities. We're projecting for the most case God's attributes. God, when you think about him, he has, as theologians like to categorize, and I think it's a good way to do it just to help us think, God has characteristics or attributes. It is the beauty of those that we call his glory. There are those that Really, he possesses uniquely. Uh, it might overlap a little bit to some degree. It's hard to put exact categories on some of these things, but I'll give you an example. They call them his incommunicable attributes that are those that he doesn't share with mankind. One is his perfection or his holiness. God is perfect in all he does. Mankind is progressing, if you will. His immutability, that is that God never changes, He's infinite. He never had a beginning. He never has an ending. His omnipotence, that he's all-powerful. He's um, omnipresent. He's everywhere. He's omniscient. He knows everything. His aseity, that's a big word, a good word, to recognize that God is self-existent. He isn't contingent on anything like we're contingent on what food and water and and shelter and things like that. God is not. He is self-sufficient then in that sense. Certainly sovereign, sovereign in an absolute, that is, sovereign over all things. He, he would, and we'll look at uh, the first man and woman in which he, he gives them a degree of sovereignty, but only as a servant of vice regent, if you will. God is um, totally immaterial, right? He's spirit. He is transcendent, that is, above everything else, and in that sense, he is unique. A creature will never be the creator, right? There there is a categorical difference. So, for him to say, I've made these men in my image, doesn't mean 
every aspect of mankind then is like God. We won't be God. Sorry, Mormons. <laughs> it ain't happening. Okay? There will always be the cre creator-creation distinction. And we could go on. There's many more distinctions, but these are attributes that we can clearly quickly think about. But to be in his image, though, does mean he does make us in his likeness, as he said. What does he mean by his likeness? Well, he communicates some things to us in attributes of mankind that image forth his glory. Things that are, are intrinsic in his nature that he grants to us. Here's, here's a few. Goodness. Justice. Hate. Hate in the sense that hating unrighteousness, not hate in an evil sense. Knowledge. Love. And in love, I would include mercy, grace, patience, faithfulness as a sub-definition. Rationality. Speech. A way to communicate. Truth. Truthfulness, although we're not truthful all the time, and wisdom. These attributes are, of mankind are unique from other creatures. And God then gives value to his creation, mankind, based on the imaging of his attributes here. They're not based on physical characteristics. And might I add, it isn't based on our perception or awareness of these attributes. I thought about that as well. You know, we may look at a person or a, uh, in, the, in whatever condition they might be in, and we may not be aware of the attributes that God has communicated to them. But the fact that he has made them in his image, in his likeness of the very triune God, gives value and worth to human beings. And I don't think I'm going to get to this, but um, I didn't necessarily plan on it either. But it, let me just say, that begins at conception. And the medical community has always affirmed that for years and years and years. It's only in recent days when they thought, well, what loophole can we find so we can get out of this conundrum? And the more they find and more they discover, the more problems they have. They try to redefine conception beyond fertilization to say, oh, okay, well, it's, um, it, it's when, the, uh, when, when, the, um, when, it's, when there's implantation. Let me just put it that way. No, not really, because if you check the single cell that starts from the very beginning that begins to divide within 24 hours, it does so because it has a unique DNA immediately. That's when life begins immediately. Back to our text. Humanity, all of humanity, regardless of whatever state that human being might be in, from the single cell to death, that humanity is always growing and developing just in different ways and forms and environments. So it has value at all stages. 
And it has a purpose, ultimately, here in time. You'll notice that in verse 26. I just want to make a point of that. It says, note here, let them have dominion. Dominion over what? All that had been created prior. Dominion here in a responsibility of stewardship. That's what men are called to do. By the way, when I say men like that, you understand, in our politically collect world, I don't always like to say men and women. It's, it's a generic term for mankind. And so I'm an old guy, so bear with me on my lack of political correctness. Um, it's mankind, a unique role to play in God's creation. Being equipped to, in the image of God then equips him to tend to the garden, if you will, to the flock, to manage resources to flourish. It won't be easy now due to the fall, of course, which we'll find out in chapter 3 of Genesis. There are going to be thorns and thistles, sweat on the brow, pain in birth. But he will be driven to steward what God has given as a vice regent. Notice verse 28 in chapter 1. He is called to be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth and have dominion over it. In that sense, mankind is sovereign over all creation, all creatures. There is a certain fear. It will be explained in chapter 9, verse 2. A fear and dread of human beings by other creatures. And we see that. I know we're afraid. You know the old adage, the snake or wild animal. They're more afraid of you than you are of it. <laughs> you have to keep telling yourself that sometimes. <laughs> the point is, our stewardship points to God and the man that he created and ultimately one who will do so perfectly. Do you know him? His name is Jesus Christ. The psalmist would put it this way in a messianic psalm that where you have humanity pointing to the, the perfect stewardship of man. Psalm 8, I'll just read it for you. You have given him dominion over the works of your hand you have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven, the fish of the sea, and whatever passes along the paths of the sea. We honor the sanctity of human life because of this unique role that we have in creation to be good stewards of it. Back to our text in verse 27. This uniqueness of human beings is created in a unique fashion of this imaging forth. Notice verse 27. He creates them in his image. What is in his image is then displayed, all right, these attributes, how? And it specifically says male and female. Now, for years, I would read through that and say, well, yeah. Today, the world's gone insane. Yeah. 
And you know who gets the brunt of it? Women. It's a great abuse of females. This has been a constant thing by the devil. We don't value boys more than girls. I'm not going to read this article for the lack of time, but I read an article of all places in the most conservative place called NPR. <laughs> you ever heard it? Yeah. Their article said that, uh, speaking of child of um, China's one-child policy, for years they thought the population was too much, so they were going to arbitrarily whittle it down. And this is, by the way, when politicians get together, whether they're totalitarian like China or totalitarian, no, never mind, uh, we're supposed to be democratic, right, in our any case. When politicians get together and create an idea, it normally makes things worse, right? Just saying. Anyway, here's one that's worse. They had this one-child policy. They thought, well, we need to diminish our population. And so, according to NPR, this forced, this led to forced abortions. And currently, when this article is written, 20 million bachelors. They don't have enough girls because they've killed them. And then their house starts sinking in the sand that they built the foundation on. And they wonder, what, how do we fix this? What's going on? Because you're insane. You can only have one, so they choose a boy. Now they have a population, as the article goes on, that's basically too old and too male. The beauty of male and female, and now our country is, and Canada has as, as already made the statement, has done in trying to create a world in which there's no distinction between male and female. It's awful. And again, the females are the ones that get the brunt of it the most. This is not men protecting women. I'm appalled by this guy who for three years swam for, I guess, was the University of Pennsylvania, just for an example. And then all of a sudden decides he's, he's, he's no longer a male. And now he's a female. And so he's a champion swimmer. And so now he's going to go be a female and win all the female races. How abusive. I'm glad my daughter's not on that team. Because he wouldn't be on it either. This is insane. It is a it is a direct rebellion against God's design, and God had a purpose for his design. Obviously, for the population to continue, right? God blessed them, verse 28, and told them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Society can't continue unless that does. You need a male and you need a female. And beyond that, they need in the covenant of marriage to raise them up. And you with kids, you know, it's hard, isn't it? It takes both of you. 
both of you to give you the unique characteristics of God that is expressed in femininity and the unique characteristics of God that are expressed in masculinity. We don't need one side of the coin. You need them both. I know there's tough situations and, and, bad, um, and things that occur that breaks these things up, for sure. But inputs of both are great. And, you know, one of the blessings is to be a part of the body of Christ in which even if you, can com- even if you come from a broken home, that you can still get the um, contributions of femininity through godly mothers in the church who reach their arm around that little boy that was, that was abandoned by his mother and show them the glory of God in femininity of what mothers and women are. I know that little boy that's me. And many mothers who had all the children that they needed <laughs> would make sure I was taken care of and tended to. It's quite a blessing. But both inputs are vital for the well-being of humanity. Both inputs are vital for the continuation of a culture and a society. There's many cultures in Europe, for example, that are dying out. You know why they're dying out? They're killing their children. So they, they, so they import other people. Germany tried that. Okay, we'll just get a bunch of people who are not part of our culture. Now our culture is, is diminishing and going away. What's going on? Of course, you've given it away. You're killing your children. There's not enough children to replace the population. And and God can handle it. I I remember in the 70s or whatever it was, This you guys, maybe not, maybe some of you do, but they had a big deal called the population explosion back then. That was part of the impetus of having abortion because we're so worried about it. Nonsense. I grew up in D.C. I flew in little small planes in the heart of D.C. And can I tell you what? There's a lot of trees. <laughs> There's a lot of open land. A lot more than you can imagine. We got plenty of room. God is sovereign also. He not only creates, he, he manages what's going, going on. Trust him. Obey his command, follow him. And besides, this, this unique covenant of male and female, it portrays God and who he is. This, it portrays the plurality and the oneness of God too. You follow me? At the very beginning, let us make man, right? They're one. And how does men and women in general get to be one in, in the covenant of marriage? Paul will use that same argument here when he talks about marriage in the home in, in, in Ephesians to say, after he gets talking about the relationship between a man and a woman in a covenant of marriage, he says, this is, this is a mystery. It's profound. But what I'm saying refers to Christ and his church. That uniqueness, that distinction between the two coming together as one it portrays the church. It's a, it is a mysterious union. 
It's mysterious to me always, and, and I'll, I'll stop pondering, maybe. But it's always mysterious to some degree. How, how, does, how does a boy from one family meet a girl from another family and vice versa? And they really have nothing in common, <laughs> really. I mean, they're not of the same biological right, um, elements there and, and uh, different um, perspectives oftentimes, but different households. And then they come together and they become one. And now they truly are and they, that they're, they're each other's best friends for life. For those of you who have been married for a long time, you understand that. It's a strange thing. When you see it happening in real time, it's, it is a, quite a mystery. But this is the way that God has designed it to accomplish his will. It doesn't every work out in every circumstance and situation, but this is the default. This is the, this is the general direction. Many are not getting married and therefore not having children. It's the insane ideology that we have today where boys think they're girls and girls think they're boys and nobody will stand up and tell them different. And if you do, in Canada, they can throw you in jail and fine you thousands of dollars. Now you know why I say they're insane. And beyond that, they are rebelling against God, the Creator, who has blessed human beings in a unique way. We need a foundation to understand who humanity is. Back to our text, look in verse 28. Humanity did not evolve... Humanity was created, created by God in his image, both male and female, and that's all there is, for a purpose, for his glory, steward the earth, continue to fill the earth, and God promised to bless them. Verse 28, God bless them. God has given a unique blessing to human beings, a special blessing, and that blessing of God begins at the beginning, at conception, before anybody else knows about it. Turn to Psalm 139, we'll finish out on this. Here the psalmist is writing and thinking about God in ways that we need to think about God in relationship to ourselves. Humanity. Psalm 139, O Lord, you have searched me and know me. God is what? Omniscient? He knows. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. God knows exactly what you're doing, exactly what you're thinking at all times. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways, even before a word is on my tongue. 
behold. Oh, Lord, you know it all together. You need to know who God is. That's who he is. You hem me in, behind, and before, and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. You know, that'll help with children wanting to kill themselves. You know, if you just teach them, oh, you're just a bunch of protoplasm and some cells that just happen to accidentally come forth. Don't understand the relationship that God has with humanity, all people, from the very beginning. Really? From the very beginning? Yes, from the beginning. We'll show it here in a second. But he's talking about even fleeing his presence. You know, he said, well, I'm going to run away from God, really. Where shall I go from your spirit? See, he's omnipresent. Where shall I flee from your presence? If, if I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. God is holding all things by the word of his power. The only reason things still exist that you can actually sit on a pew right now is because of God. It's easy to forget that because we know every time we sit down, it holds us up or that we can sit down. But God is intricately involved in every aspect of human life. Every aspect. If I say, surely the the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, but the darkness is as light with you. That's a beautiful thing. And then he goes on from the very beginning of conception, verse 13. Underline that, meditate on that, think about that. For you formed me. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. It's talking about the growth from the very beginning in that state, in the mother's womb, knitting him together. As I mentioned, some people argue, when does it life begin? Right here. And who creates it? God. Who forms it? God. Who continues it? God. We know this scientifically. I've already mentioned how the zygote, the single cell, it just has a unique DNA from its mother and father. It contributed from both sides, but yet it is unique, immediately divides. It is something different. It is alive. The issue is not about science. It is about a sinful rebellion against the very creation of God in his image. The psalmist isn't in rebellion. Instead, he responds then thinking about this truth as what? Praise. Verse 14, I praise you. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Can I tell you this? This is every single human being from the very beginning to the end, fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. Yes, From the very beginning, even when we can't tell its form, God knows its form. He sees it. And then beyond it, in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, 
as yet before there was none of them. This is why we promote the sanctity of human life, because it is God's creation. Verse 17, another response in great praise. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God, the vast sum of them. Don't teach your children that they just are here accidentally. They're here imaging the very character of God. Imperfectly as they might do it, but you will see expressions of it even with the meanest child. You'll see some beauty in, in it, even in the simplest of children. But the moment of conception, human life is wonderfully made. All life is precious to God at all times, even those that struggle. And may be a great challenge for us in in dealing with them, in helping them, in being God's steward over his creation, which includes created human beings. Remember when we had our last two kids, we went like 11 years and break in children, not because we wanted to, but there were some physical problems we weren't aware of. When we became aware of them, we, ha- we prayed and had some surgery, and by God's grace, we had two children. <laughs> One right after the other. But um, somebody was approaching 40. I won't say who. And this really concerns the doctors if, if you haven't had a child when you're that age. They go nuts. At least ours did. And they kept telling us, well, you want us to check it out, make sure it's okay, we'll do this, that. I said, will it help them? No. I said, well, we're going to keep it. We'll keep it no matter what. I mean, we pray for health and safety and well-being. Sure we do. But you know what? We also trust God to be a good steward of what he has given us. Is it, is it going to be filled with thorns and thistles? Yeah, everyone to some degree. Some may have to bear a greater burden than others. I know. I understand. And it is hard. And I have great empathy for those that have to bear great burden. But can I tell you there's coming today? when every tear will be wiped away. Trust God. There'll be no more tears. There'll be no more sorrow. There will be only praise. And you will see glimpses of glory. I'm sorry for telling stories, but i got one more to tell. Uh, well, on that, I would, I, we, 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 when we found out we were pregnant with our uh, second child after 11 years, you know, one of the things that we were, we were reluctant to tell anybody because we didn't know if it would take, right? And great concerns. But you know, we walked out hand in hand and said this, we're going to keep it for however long God gives it to us. And some of you have lost children from the very beginning, you know, just shortly after conception. I understand that's hard. But God gives life and you are a steward of it however long he gives it to us. I'll just say one more thing that I had a friend of mine who had a mentally disabled child. It's a pastor friend. And, um, you know, they had a couple of children. It was fine. And then they had this one. And, and he expressed to me how difficult it was. And, but, but then they saw some joy there in, in God's creation and, and their stewardship of it. And, in fact, it, it ended up changing his life. He ended up adopting 
a half a dozen more mentally disabled children. Changed the whole direction of his life and gave him a unique love for God's creation, whatever condition they might be in, as a praise to the glorious grace of God and understanding his creation. I thought about this little song that we sing, Jesus Loves the Little Children, and uh, maybe Daryl could help me at some point to, to rewrite this, but I'm not that good at it, but I'll, I'll, I took a stab at it for whatever it's worth. Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. Those hidden in their mother's womb, his eyes can see them bloom. All their days were written in a book in which, one, which no one else can even look. They are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. Let us pray. Father, I pray that you will comfort those that may be under great duress for whatever circumstances they might find. I pray that you give them strength. I pray for us as your church that we would proclaim the truth, preach the gospel in our life and every day. I pray for many sons and daughters to rise up and confess Jesus Christ as Lord. We repent for the rebellion of our country who has set laws into place to make it easy to kill and discard human beings that have been made in your image. I pray that we would not take up weapons of, of war, of the flesh, but of the spirit, that we would proclaim the truth and that we would pray and see the powerful work of your divine providence displayed. May we see the smiling face of God through the darkest day. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Beloved, I'm going to give you a moment now privately to go directly to God right where you're at. If you have sin to confess, you can go to him. If you need to repent and trust Jesus Christ, you can do it even now. Take a moment privately where you're at. If you need to talk to one of the elders, we'll be here after the service is over. But take a few minutes now. We'll pray and close. Take a moment now. Indeed, do everything. Indeed.
Gracious Father, we just pray that you'd help us to serve the Lord with gladness and come before your presence with singing, to know that you, Lord, it is you that is God, you that are God, and that he that hath made us, not we ourselves, we are as people and the sheep of his pasture, to enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise, being thankful for him and to bless his name, for the Lord is good, his mercy is everlasting, and his truth endureth to all generations. Amen and amen. You're dismissed. Thank you.